Good morning. Welcome again. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Uh, we are continuing our series on Romans this morning and jumping into uh, what I think is one of the more important chapters in this entire book. Uh, last year, one of my favorite or proudest accomplishments uh, was teaching my kids how to ride a bike without training wheels. Uh, this was at the very beginning of the pandemic, so like many of you, we were stuck at home, nothing to do, and this seemed like a good way to spend our time. On top of that, Kaya had really been wanting to learn. Her New Year's resolution for 2019 was to learn how to ride a bike, and it was now April 2020, so we had a little bit of catching up to do. And so I started with Kaya. I started, I took her out to learn how to do this, and I have to be honest, it was a challenging process. Initially, things really didn't go very well. You know, I took her out, sat her down on the bike, and you know, she had done enough on training wheels. She sort of knew what to do, so she, I'd hold the, the bars, the handlebars. She'd start to pedal, pick up some speed. I'd run alongside her, and of course, as soon as I let go of the handlebars, she would just start to topple over to one side. Now, the first couple times, no big deal. This was to be expected. But over and over and over again, day after day, this is as far as we were getting. No matter what I told her or how, I, how hard I tried or how hard she tried, just as soon as I let go, she'd be over to one side. The best she could do was like maybe a second and a half. But that was mostly just a second and a half of falling slowly instead of falling quickly. And as a teacher, I was just kind of at a loss. I didn't really know how to explain this, so all I could really think to say was basically stop falling. Like, when you feel yourself start to fall, don't do that. Like, go the other way. And she would look up at me, and, and she had this look that just kind of broke my heart. And you could just tell she was feeling like, Dad, I'm trying. I don't want to fall either. I just, I just don't get this. I don't understand what you want me to do. Now, to make matters worse, in the midst of all this, I started to think about uh, Kaya's genetic material because her Grammy, your Pastor Donna, cannot ride a bike. Her Auntie Tracy, my sister, one of the most competent people I know, can't ride a bike. So I'm starting to think maybe this is just a Katagi women thing, and she'll never be able to do this. I start to wonder, man, like, maybe she just can't. And so I'm feeling bummed out, she's bummed out, and Grayson's over on the side watching all of this with Alyssa, and he starts to say, you know, I don't think I want to learn how to ride a bike. It looks really hard, it looks like too much work, it doesn't look like that much fun, so I don't even think I'm going to try. And that was kind of rock bottom. Eventually, the story did have a happy ending. I did what I obviously should have done from the very start. It shouldn't have taken me three or four days to think of this, but I Googled how to teach your kid how to ride a bike, found a bunch of articles that all said the same thing. You should take the pedals off and have them just glide along, like push along with their feet and get the feeling of gliding, that feeling of momentum. And they can do this gradually, and when they start to topple over, they can put a foot down. And so we tried this, 
took Kai's pedals off, and of course, it, it worked. It was like magic. Within a couple days, she was gliding no problem. We put the pedals on, and she was off to the races. Same thing with Gray. Took him like a day and a half, and he was riding a bike too. And so that one skill, that feeling of balance, was a game changer for the kids, for this whole process. Everything clicked once we had that figured out. And as we continue in our series on Romans this morning, as we come to this really crucial chapter in Paul's narrative of the gospel, we see one of the game changers of the Christian life, a key to living this life faithfully and joyfully. Now, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about the challenges of living according to the way of Christ. And we've come across some really uh, difficult or challenging descriptions of this life, challenging passages that call on us to live by faith. Don't be a slave to sin. Instead, be a slave to righteousness. Don't live under the law. Choose life, not death. And these passages, I think, can be both inspiring and frustrating. On one hand, they remind us of this high bar of the Christian life, this amazing calling that we have, and they can motivate us to be who God called us to be. But at the same time, I think for many of us, there's this nagging sense of doubt, and inability, maybe even frustration. At times, these kind of passages and these kind of sermons maybe feel like someone saying to you over and over again, don't sin. When you feel yourself starting to sin, stop doing that. Maybe that's what church feels like to you. Stop sinning and be better. This constant struggle to do something that maybe doesn't make sense. Like, I want to do that. I want to be like that. I just, I don't understand how. Maybe for you it's a little bit like Grayson sitting off to the side and you're, you're looking at this and you're thinking about doing it and, and you're thinking, that just sounds too hard. I don't know if I can do that. It doesn't look like that much fun. I don't even want to try. And so Romans 8 is a really pivotal chapter because it's here that Paul begins to explore uh, really the the crucial aspect of doing this, how to do it. This is where Paul takes off the pedals and teaches us how to glide. Because it's here that he introduces us to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, where he really unpacks the role of the Spirit in our lives. And so what we'll see this morning and for the next several weeks is how essential the Spirit is in our lives, how important the work of the Spirit is. And for some of you, you might think of the Holy Spirit as kind of a fringe theology, or maybe the Holy Spirit is just for some very specific tasks and very specific people and very specific parts of the Christian life. But what we see here is that it's so much bigger than those things. The Holy Spirit is how we do life. It's how we follow Jesus. And so this morning, uh, I'm just going to cover a few short verses. And again, we'll be talking about the Spirit for the next several weeks. And, and today, I just want to talk about why, to introduce us to why the Spirit is so important. 
So let's go ahead and and dive into our passage for this morning. We're going to be looking at four verses, Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. And we'll start in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want to stop there for a second because this is a really fundamental idea to the whole flow of thought in Romans 8 and Romans as a whole. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in previous chapters, we've talked about the past element of our justification. How we've been declared righteous. We've been set free from the power of sin. But in this chapter, what Paul is primarily talking about is the reality of future judgment. Now, before we talk about this, I want to be really clear, like, please stick with me as we talk about this, because if you hear this wrong, you can end up with a really problematic understanding of grace and salvation. And this is a difficult idea to understand, but it's what scripture says, and so I want to spend a little bit of time here. And one of the really clear ideas we see in scripture is that everyone both believer and non-believer, will be judged according to their works. Uh, Way back in Romans 2, Paul talks about this very idea. In verse 6 he says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. If you skip down to verse 16, he adds this, This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So we see that this is a future event, something Paul, that look, Paul is looking ahead to, something that will take place, and it's clearly based on works, what we have done. We also know from other parts of scripture that believers don't get a pass. We don't skip out of this line because we're already saved. And Paul says this explicitly later in Romans 14. Verse 10, he says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of ourselves before God. Now, I know this sounds like kind of a scary idea. And I really don't want this to be the focus of the message. I don't want you to walk home from this or or (laughs) sit at home from this and, and walk away thinking about future judgment. Because this isn't the thing that Paul wants to stick with us. We're not veering into some kind of weird territory of, you know, a legalistic works righteousness where we are saved, but we have to work. We have to do good things. We have to be good enough people, good enough Christians to meet the standard of this future judgment. That's not what Paul is saying. And that's why we have to see this this first statement and recognize its importance where Paul tells us as clearly as he can in reference to this future judgment, there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. When it comes to this coming judgment in the future, if you are in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. No reason to fear. No reason to worry. No reason to doubt the results of this future judgment. He's saying those of you who are in Christ, your verdict is already secure. It's already set in stone. Because what Paul believes and what he's going to explain here is his absolute confidence that if you are in Jesus, then your works will line up with your faith. This passage, first and foremost, is a word of encouragement. To those who have read through chapters 5, 6, and 7 and thought to themselves, you know, maybe I can't do this. Maybe this whole Christian life isn't for me. That looks hard. I don't know if I'm able. I don't know if I have it in me to be a slave to righteousness, to live out that kind of commitment. Paul says here, you can. There's no condemnation for you if you know Jesus. There's no doubt that your life can and will be characterized by the kind of righteousness God has called you to. And the really challenging question we have to wrestle with is how? How does he know this? How can he be so sure? And just as important, how can we know? How can we have this kind of confidence that we'll live this way? When the reality of our sin and brokenness is so apparent to us. And the answer is simple. And it's this key, this, this, this missing piece that we've been building towards, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's read the whole section now, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Once again, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says, here is how I know. Because when Jesus went to the cross, when he died and rose again, not only did he put sin to death, did he condemn sin, did he take away sin's power over you, but he also rose to life and gave you the spirit of life. He gave you the spirit. And it's the spirit that empowers you to be the exact kind of person God wants you to be. It's the spirit that empowers you to be who God created you to be. It's the spirit that empowers you to live a life that leads to no condemnation. Let's unpack this passage a little bit more, and I think this idea will make a little more sense. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again, and, and here we see a really important idea, that the Holy Spirit fulfills the intent of the law in us. Verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, what the law was supposed to do but couldn't, 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, this is a really important idea that Jesus didn't come to throw out the law completely, to get rid of it because it was a bad idea. Instead, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to do in us what the law was supposed to do. See, the intent of the law was always so much bigger than obedience to certain rules and regulations. The law wasn't just so that we would be super religious and moral people. It wasn't just so that we would do good things and not do bad things. The true purpose of the law was to show people how to be genuinely devoted to God. How to really know him and love him. The law wasn't so much about the specific behaviors as it was about a complete internal orientation towards God. Now, obviously, the actions do matter. The specifics that he's called us to do matter. It matters that we don't murder or steal or lie. But the larger thing God wanted for us, what God was trying to teach us through those things, was having our hearts and minds centered around who God was, what he was like, what our calling was as his people. Uh, when I was playing high school basketball, I remember a, a specific drill that our coach used to run pretty frequently. And I think this is a pretty common drill, so some of you might have done this, some of your kids might do this. But basically, we'd be scrimmaging, and whenever a team had the ball, the only rule was that every person on offense, all five players, had to touch the ball before you could shoot it. So you can't shoot until everybody touches. It's got to be a bunch of passes. And I thought this was fine. I enjoyed this drill. But it drove some people crazy because that meant that sometimes you'd have, like, an open shot, an easy layup. But if you shot it, even if you made it, you would get in trouble. You'd have to run some laps or something. So instead, you'd have an open layup, but you'd pass the ball out to make sure that everybody got their touches. Now, obviously, this doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of trying to win basketball games or trying to score the most points, and we didn't actually do this in games. But our coach was trying to teach us something, not the mechanics of how to make sure everybody touches the ball, but how to be unselfish how to play as a team, how to think about the game of basketball as not just how can I get my points, but how can I work together? How can we work together? And so even though we didn't take this rule into games, it did instill that value in us to play together. And, and really, we did pass a lot as a team. We were a, a very unselfish team, and we did well. Now again, the specifics of the law did matter. But what mattered more was what God wanted to do in us through the law. To change what kind of people we are, what we care about, what we love, who and what we live for. That's why when a, a young teacher of the law came up to Jesus and asked him, hey, which of the commands is 
most important? Give me a specific one that, that's really, really important. Jesus kind of gives him a non-answer. He doesn't point to one specific law. Instead, he points to a, the larger summation of the law. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus wanted us to consider the true purpose of the law. What's God doing in my heart? Am I growing in my love and devotion to God? Am I seeing his loving character define who I am and, and how I live and what I think about? And so throughout Romans, what, what Paul has been telling us over and over again is that this is what the law failed to do. This is what didn't happen for Israel, even though they had the law. This internal change. And he says it's not because the law was bad, but because the law couldn't overcome the effects of our sin. The law could show us what to do. The law could outline very specifically the contours of the Christian life and show us all the things that we should do. But at the end of the day, the law could not transform the sinful human heart. The law had no power to change who we are. It couldn't make us this kind of person. And so this is what Paul has been building towards for the last several chapters, to understand this idea of intent, of what God has been wanting to do in his people forever. To build this kind of devoted person who does life with him, under him, for him. And so here he reveals really God's master stroke, this amazing plan that ensured that this purpose would finally be fulfilled in followers of Jesus. This plan to literally change our hearts. Not just to show us a new set of rules or a new way of living. Not just to get us off of the hook for sin and wipe the slate clean, but to actually create a transformed person. The kind of person the law pointed to. And what we see in this passage and, and in this chapter is that he does this by giving us the Holy Spirit. By giving us the very power and righteousness of God himself in us and with us. You know, I remember a, a time long ago before there was Google Maps or Apple Maps when you actually had to ask for directions if you needed to get somewhere. And I know this was a long time ago and most of you hopefully remember this, but this was kind of difficult for a lot of reasons. This didn't always work out that well. There's a reason why Google Maps was developed. Because you would ask someone for directions. You'd ask them, hey, how do I get here? And first you had to pay attention. You had to listen to what they told you. You had to remember what they told you. Maybe you write it down and, and, and try to have a whole list of all the things you're supposed to do. But most importantly, you actually have to follow those directions. You have to apply what someone says to the real-life situation of driving, which is not always easy. Because that person might have said, hey, after a few miles, turn left. And you don't know if they mean a few miles like two miles or a few miles like eight miles, and you're not sure where you're turning. Or you might not be unsure if they meant like a 
sharp right or a slight right, and you've got two right turns and you don't know which way to go. Or you're driving along and, and, and you can't see the name of the street. It's like, is this where I'm supposed to turn? Is that where I'm supposed to turn? Oh, no, I was supposed to turn there. I missed the turn. Now I'm lost. And the longer the drive, the harder it was. The harder it was to get where you were going. And Paul says, in a way, the law was a little bit like this. Great directions. Here's how you can get there. But in contrast, the spirit would be like asking someone for directions and having them say, you know what? I'll hop in the car with you. I'll help you get there. I'll tell you where to go. All you need to do is listen to my voice. If you get lost, I'll, I'll lead you back. If you get tired, I, I could take over for a little while. But I know where we're going. We're going to get there. And I'll stay with you until we make it. The Spirit gets us where God always wanted us to go, creates in us the person that God meant us to be. And this has been God's intent from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, the prophets look forward to a time when this very thing would be possible. They look forward to an age to come when the Spirit would do this. Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jeremiah 31, the same idea. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. And we are in this time. Jesus made this a reality for us, the spirit writing the law, the perfect intent of the law upon our hearts. And this really is a huge part of the good news of the gospel, the giving of the spirit. And this declaration of no condemnation has new meaning when we consider this. So you remember through chapters 5, 6, and 7, Paul's been talking about two kinds of people. One who is mastered by sin and heading towards death. One who is mastered by righteousness and heading towards life. And here he says definitively, you are the second type of person. You are a spirit type of person. You are the person who is being transformed by the Spirit's power. And so you have no reason to doubt, no reason to fear. And if you have faith in Jesus, if you have the kind of faith we talked about in chapter 2, 3, and 4, then that guarantees the Spirit in you. And the Spirit does and will produce the kind of life and righteousness that you're called to. And we have to recognize, right, it's, it's not about being perfect. When we think about this future judgment, when we think about this life that we're called to live, when we think about righteousness, it's not about being perfect. It's not about always keeping every rule and never sinning and never struggling. It's not about having to be like that super holy person over there. But it's this gradual, lifelong process of knowing and loving God more becoming more centered on who he is and letting that just gradually impact and control our, our behaviors, our thoughts, what we do and how we live. 
And for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about how the Spirit does this. How the Spirit affects the choices we make. How the Spirit impacts our relationship with God. Our calling as His people. Our assurance and our standing before Him. We'll talk more about what it means to participate in the work of the Spirit. This important idea of keeping in step with the Spirit. That the Spirit doesn't just magically make all this happen, but it's a thing we do together. But before we get to all of that, this morning I want us to simply recognize this basic, simple, essential idea that you have what you need. You do. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is 2 Peter 1.3. The author says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. You have everything you need. You can do it. You can live this life that God's called you to. You can overcome the sin in your life. You can live out your purpose as light and blessing. You're not powerless. You are not condemned. You are a spirit person. You are becoming a transformed person. And you have God's power, God's victory, God's life literally written upon your heart, changing you, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And so I think spiritual growth begins with this confidence and this conviction. The confidence that I can. That I do have the Spirit. That by this simple act of faith, by God's grace, I've been given this amazing helper to not just show me the way, but to go with me. And you have this conviction. It begins with this conviction that because I have the Spirit, my life has meaning, my choices have meaning because there's so much potential for what God wants to do in me, what God can do in me. And to have that desire to live by the Spirit. And so this morning, we begin there with this invitation to the confidence and conviction that comes from having the Spirit. And so as we close together in worship, I just want to invite you to celebrate this truth. Maybe it's something that you've known for a long time. Maybe it's a brand new idea. But this good news should never get old. The Spirit in you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you haven't left us to uh, do this life on our own, to do this life by our own power, by our own goodness. That from start to finish, it is your grace, it is your goodness, it's your power. And God, we want to recognize that as your people, we have the Holy Spirit. And God, as we continue to study this amazing truth, pray that you would help us to experience more. 
that you would unlock more of the Spirit's power in each one of us so that we could have this kind of confidence, that we could have this kind of conviction, and that ultimately we would see this kind of transformation in our lives. So God, we thank you, we love you, and we we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.